Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to begin reading in verse 10. And the word of the Lord says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim, my faith, my patience, my love and my steadfastness, my persecution and suffering that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecution I endured, yet from all of these the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author and council member of the Gospel Coalition, John Piper, uh, once wrote, If the Bible is God's word, by definition, no human authority or human institution can serve alongside the Bible with equal authority. Neither the Pope nor any human council or any scholar or priest or pastor or human tradition has the authority of the Bible if it is God's word. And it is. I want to welcome you this morning to a brand new series this morning titled uh, Sola or subtitled um, The Heart of the Reformation. And the reason why we're in this series is because something very important happened in October nearly 500 years ago. You see, something happened uh, um, that radically changed the world. And and sometimes things happen that that change the world. And sometimes when they do happen, they drastically alter the course of human history. And many times when those things happen, we know about it. We know that the world has changed. Like November 22nd, 1963. John F. Kennedy was assassinated. When that happened, people knew the world changed. Right? People knew that history changed at that moment. Everyone who was alive um, at that time and in that moment, they could tell you where they were and what they were doing, and they remember. Right? They remember crystal clear. They knew that the world had changed. Or how about July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine, when Apollo eleven with its crew touched down on the moon? As the world watched. In awe as Neil Armstrong stepped out of the lunar uh, module onto the, the moon's surface. Everyone in the world knew when that happened that the world was different. And the same could be said for the bombing of Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. The president then, Roosevelt, said that this was a day that would live in infamy. right? A day that people would remember. He understood and the world understood when that moment happened, the world was forever changed. And it's the same with September 11th, 2001. As we all stood mesmerized, watching our televisions, wondering in disbelief, all of us know who were alive, where we were. We all remember what we were doing. We all remember what the day was like. And we knew at that moment that the world was not going to be the same. It was going to be forever altered. You see, there are many events that shape the world, whether good or whether bad, that change everything we know And we know it as soon as it happens. We're aware of the magnitude of that change. 
But on the other hand, there are things that happen in, in life. There are life-changing events and world-changing events that happen that nobody even notices at the time that they happen. Events in, in, in the moment that seem so insignificant, seem so routine, seem so innocuous. Something just happens and no one really understands at the time that, 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 that what happened is actually shaping and changing the world. We don't understand the magnitude of those things until much later. For instance, November 1923, one woman's act of kindness and compassion for her friend changed the entire world forever. Her name was Helen. She was a New Yorker. She was married to a man from Boston named Ernst, and together they had a child named Egan. And while they were living in Europe, Helen and her husband became very close friends with an up-and-coming politician. In fact, they spent a lot of time together. They found the man charming and, and kind and polite, and um, their son uh, Egan loved this, this man. He was like family to them. In fact, their home was like a second home to him. Well, one day, this young man found himself in deep trouble, so much so that, that he was on the run from the police and he was desperate to escape. He was actually worried for his life. And he was trying to leave the country, but his car broke down. And all he could do was to think about running to his friend's house. And when he arrived, Helen and her son Egan were home. And Helen said, when I saw him, I barely could recognize him. He was pale <clears throat> and he was hatless and his face and clothing were covered in mud. One of his arms was hanging limp um, because it was badly dislocated. His shoulder was dislocated. And he was in obvious pain about to go in shock, and this man was not alone. He was escorted by a doctor and a medic. Helen immediately went to work in an effort to help her friend, and she welcomed them all in, into her home and helped him to get cleaned up and then moved him upstairs where the doctor could attempt to work on him and put his shoulder back in place. Well, the next morning didn't bring any good news. Helen got word that the police were actually on their way and they figured out where he was. And so she went upstairs and told her friend uh, what was happening. And, and he was already frantic and he was pa pacing back and forth. And then when she told him the news, he panicked and began to be devastated. And he said to Helen, all is lost. There's no use going on. And he grabs a pistol off the dresser and he sticks it to his head as he's about to commit suicide. And Helen, without thinking, grabbed the gun and, and slapped his arm away and, and took the, removed the gun from him. And she shouted at him, what are you doing? What are you thinking? After all that you've done, are you going to do this? After all these people who have rallied to your ideas to save our country, and now you're, <clears throat> you're going to take your own life. These people are depending upon you to carry on. And so in an act of love, she convinced him to live and to fight another day. She had, she, had, she had him tell her what he wanted his followers to do while he was in jail. And then he, she convinced him to turn himself in, which he did. He was arrested without any incident whatsoever. You see, she saved his life. She saved his political career too, because his political career was far from over. While he was in prison, he wrote a book that became the plan to change his country. And once he was released, he was even more politically powerful than when he went in. And just think he was about to end it all in a moment of crisis. But his friend Helen saved his life. And nobody, not even Helen at that moment, could see just how much her decision to grab the gun would change not just his life, not just that country, but change the entire world. Because she... 
because she took that gun away, she forever changed the world because the man she saved from killing himself was none other than Adolf Hitler. All the atrocities, all the horror of World War II, all those lives, those millions of lives that were lost could have vanished in the squeeze of a trigger. But she kept it from happening. She had no idea the impact of that event. Now, as we look back on that event, we see the magnitude of that decision. Right? That decision, that single decision changed everything, and no one knew it in the moment. But now we see it. History is full of those kinds of moments, both good and bad. Everyday things that happen that seem to be insignificant in the moment, yet there's a rippling effect that's found around the entire world. October 31st, 1517 was one of those days. It was one of those events. 500 years ago, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther went to the church at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, and he nailed a document to the door called the 95 Thesis. It was an event that changed the entire course of history. Now, this event is often memorialized this way. And what you see in artwork is Martin Luther boldly and confidently walking up to the door with deep conviction and a serious look on his face as he nails the document to the door with a very loud, ominous hammer stroke. You know, and people come and they watch and they stand in amazement as this, as this brave man is taking on the, the old regime, the Catholic Church, as he nails his demands to the door. But that's not how it happened. Right? Yes, Martin Luther did nail the document to the door. And yes, that event did change the world. But at the time, in that moment, it wasn't a big deal at all. Because the truth is, nailing you know, something to the church door was not an act of rebellion. Instead, it was, it was a way to advertise. It was a way to communicate. It's kind of like posting a, a flyer down here at the Boron Food Mart on the window. The church door at the university... There, it was like the community bulletin board. And so when Martin Luther nailed his document to the door, he wasn't, he wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. He certainly didn't think that he was starting a reformation, and he, he just thought he was starting a conversation, that he thought he was inviting others to talk and to debate because he had something really, some really deep questions and concerns. That's how debates got started, is a person had an idea, they'd post it up there, and somebody decided to take them on. And so October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther calmly nails his 95 thesis to the church door. And that just might have been the end of an otherwise ordinary day. But this was at a time when the printing press was really coming into its own. And an enterprising printer, without Martin Luther's permission, took Luther's 95 thesis translated it from Latin, which is what they communicated in at the university, translated it into the common German, printed it, and then shared it all over Germany. And because of that, Martin Luther's ideas began to catch fire because they resonated with so many other people and their thoughts about the church and about faith. And because of that, then, the world changed. But how did it change? And why did it change? Well, to answer that question, we have to really understand a little bit more of Martin Luther's story. You see, Martin Luther was studying to be an attorney. That was his vocation that his dad was paying for for him to be. And one day he was riding home through the woods 
And he was caught in a storm. And if you knew anything about Germans then, there were two things that they were afraid of. The woods and storms. They were very superstitious. And as the lightning flashed near him, he cried out in terror to St. Anne that if she would save him and deliver him out of the storm, he would become a monk in the Catholic Church. And he survived. And so he made good on his promise and became not just simply a devoted monk of the Augustinian order. He became the epitome of what a monk was supposed to be. Martin Luther was sold out for the church. Right? He was sold out completely for his life as a monk because he wanted desperately to be right with God. And so Martin Luther pursued a life as a monk with a very obsessed focus. Luther devoted himself to regular fasting, long hours of prayer, pilgrimages, frequent confessions. In fact, historians record that Martin Luther would spend as much as six hours in a confessional booth. A monk in a monastery. How much trouble can you get into? Right? Six hours, right? Six hours in a confession. In fact, it was recorded that one day the priest who was hearing his confession refused to see him. Just refused. And sent word to Martin Luther that, that he's not going to hear his confessions until Martin Luther actually does something that was worth confessing. Right? Something that, that was really wrong. You see, Martin Luther was all in. He wasn't aware just of the big sins. He was aware of all his sins. And he was remorseful for it. And he was terrified. He was terrified that his sin would cost him his soul. And so he did everything that he could. He did everything the church prescribed to overcome that guilt. He was like the Catholic's Catholic, right? He was the monk's monk. He confessed. He did penance. He served God with all his heart. He was generous. He obeyed all the rites and rituals. And he denied himself pleasures. He fasted for lengthy periods of time. He did everything in his power to make himself right with God. But somewhere in his heart, he knew it wasn't enough. In fact, Luther described that period of his life as one of, of deep spiritual despair. He said, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made him the jailer and the hangman of my poor soul. But ever devoted to the Catholic Church, Luther was... Uh, was sent to the University of Wittenberg where he earned his doctorate degree in theology and he became a leading theology professor there. And it was while he was studying theology and teaching theology at Wittenberg that Martin Luther was working his way through the book of Romans when he came across the text in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 that challenged his entire understanding of salvation. Because in this text, Paul makes very clear, he says, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, to that point, Martin Luther was living in a world where he was taught that the righteous live by following what the church teaches you to do. The righteous live by the works that you have to do to earn your way. The righteous live by going to confession and doing penance and working hard and doing everything you possibly can do to make God happy and accept you. And so Martin Luther lived in a world where righteousness could, the righteous could never really know. They could never really know if they were saved because they were always living up to the law and the rituals and the sacraments. And they were always trying to overcome the sin in their lives so that they could be righteous. 
But when he reads the words of Paul, who says the righteous shall live by faith. Salvation is not, the salvation is to everyone who believes. Salvation and righteousness and justification is not about what we can do to make God pleased with us. It's about us believing and having faith in God. The righteous shall live not by self-righteousness, but by faith. And at that, the entire world changed for Martin Luther. Suddenly, he no longer was held captive by the guilt of his sin. He was free. He was justified, not because of what he did, but by faith that he had in the finished work of Christ on the cross. In fact, Luther um, was recorded as saying, when I discovered that, that, that the righteous shall live by faith, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. Martin Luther was saved, and he was free at last. Which then raised an important question for him. If we are justified by faith, and what about all the other stuff? Because there was a lot of other stuff the church was saying was necessary. What about confessions and penance? What about having to obey the Pope? What about indulgences? How do all those other things fit in then? Because the Catholic Church said that righteous must live by the rules. You must attend Mass. You must receive communion. You must be confirmed. You must live by what the church says that you need to do and what the Pope says you need to do. And the church said that if you die, you go to purgatory if you're a Christian and have any sin in your life, which is a holding place for those who you know, didn't get it all confessed. And so they go to purgatory. And no, who knows how many years or hundreds of years you'd spend there in torment as your sins are slowly burned away. This torment that could last for, for many, 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 many generations or... A loved one can walk down to the church and talk to a priest and give him some money and he'd give you an indulgence and then they'd lessen your time in purgatory. Which, if you read Romans 1, you don't really see any indication of that at all. And so if Martin Luther was right, if the righteous live by faith, what about the other stuff that, you know, that the church believes in and teaches? I mean, he was a Catholic monk. You have to understand, he was part of the church. Okay? And this is the question that Martin Luther had. How can the Bible say one thing that seems so very clear, but how can the church then say something completely different that even seems corrupt? It was desire. It was his desire to reconcile these issues. Right? He wanted to reconcile them. He wasn't trying to cause a problem. He wanted to reconcile them. Right? Because he loved the church. It was his desire to reconcile these things that caused him to take the action he did. And so he wrote down his 95 thesis of what he understood that Scripture was saying versus what the church was saying. And he nailed it to the door. And understand, it was not an act of rebellion. It was a sincere invitation to have a conversation inside of the church that he really loved so much. He wanted to have a debate where he would either have his understanding corrected or he would challenge the church itself to be corrected by the word of God. Martin Luther just simply wanted the truth to shine forth in his beloved church. But what happened was the exact opposite. The church couldn't convince him that he was in error. The church simply couldn't build a case uh, strong enough to correct his thinking. And likewise, the church refused to recognize and embrace the truth of justification by faith apart from all other religious requirements. 
Martin Luther, in fact, found a distinct unwillingness by the church to rethink anything, especially the issue of justification, which raised many questions like, why? Why would the church simply not recognize the truth and change? Well, there's a number of reasons. Among them is money. Right? The church raised a lot of money during that time in the sale of indulgences. You have to understand how things worked back then. The Catholic Church was filled full of people who bought positions in the church because it meant power and influence and more money. And some of these people would actually like go out and borrow the money and leverage everything they had so they could buy this position. And the way they got their money back was a sale of indulgences. And so they had a built-in market need for you not to be justified by faith alone. Another reason was power. Because according to the church, you couldn't be saved unless you were in the church, doing what the church said. So guess what? You needed the church. And that gave the Catholic Church a lot of influence in people's lives. But I think the most important reason why the church wouldn't change its stance on justification to match what Scripture said is because the church then and still then lean on Scripture alone for its foundation for theological truth. The Catholic Church believed at the time and maintains still to this day that the truth about God rests not just in the Scriptures, but it rests in other things as well, such as the written, the unwritten um, traditions of the church and the traditions of the saints. They believe those things to be authoritative alongside the Bible. Catholic Church also believed and still believes that the truth about God and salvation rests also on what's called the magisterium, which includes the church hierarchy, church councils, and ultimately on the office of the Pope, or what they call papal authority. And so for most Catholic, for the Catholic Church, the truth ultimately is about lots of things and not just Scripture. But Martin Luther saw that there was a, a contradiction here. He saw in the Bible that it plainly says that you are justified by faith, right? But tradition and papal authority said you're justified by what you do in the church. The Bible says one thing, the church says something else, altogether different. Right? And, when, and when questioned about this, the church would say, well, your understanding of scriptures is wrong because only the magisterium, only the church councils and only the Pope can tell you what scripture actually means anyway. In fact, the Pope's, Say well, what the Pope would, Pope would say supersedes all of what Scripture says too, which means then for the Catholic Church, ultimately the source of truth is not Scripture, the man, a Pope, a fallible human being, because ultimately the Catholic Church, the Pope, right, has authority over Scripture, and he has the authority over traditions, and and he even has authority over church councils. In fact, there was a doctrine in the Church called papal infallibility, which essentially says the Pope can't be wrong. But that presents a whole other set of issues and problems because throughout history there have been popes who have contradicted each other and disagreed with one another. I mean, look at Pope Francis and his predecessor, predecessor uh, Pope John Paul. They have very different theological views. You can see it. Very different theological perspectives, right? So who's right? Which, who's, who's, who's the one that speaks for God then? 
And so if, they're, if, if you're speaking for God, if you're the one who has authority to say what is true, then why is there so much inconsistency between these people? Never mind the time in history where there was at one time three different popes, all of them claiming to be the true pope, all of them buying for position as the real pope, and each one of them, you know, um, pronouncing anathema on each other and pronouncing each, each other to be heretics. I mean... Seriously, how could that be the source of infallible truth that we can lean on? So how do I know what the truth is? That's the question that Martin Luther was really asking. How do I know what the truth is? Where, where, where can I go to know for sure the truth about God and who he really is? How can I know that I'm really saved? How can I know without a doubt what it is that I need to believe? I mean, with all these competing truths and all these disagreements, which is the one Right? Which is the foundation? Which is the final word, the final authority? And we've all been there at least, at least once. I mean, I, I think we've all been in situations where we're not for sure who is actually the one that's supposed to be in authority. You've asked somebody that you know and respect a question, right? And they give you a, a, an answer. And then you ask somebody else who, who you respect equally and they give you a different answer. And you're like, well, who's right? Who's wrong? All right, you go to work and your boss says, hey, you got to do this this way. And then 10 minutes later, another boss walks up and says, no, you don't do it that way. You do it this way, right? Yeah, who's the one that's in final authority? Who makes, who, who, who's, the, who's the final say-so, right? I mean, you go and you ask your dad, hey, can I go hang out with my friends? And he says, yes, but mom says, no. Who has the final authority? Well, don't answer that question right now, okay? You just settle that at home, all right? But you've all been there, right? We've, we've gotten those mixed signals and we're having to wonder, okay, who's really the one that has the final authority? You understand what I'm talking about here? We've all been in those situations where we've been asking these questions. Well, this is exactly what Martin Luther faced. He really was desperately wanting to know the answer, you know. So who do I believe so that I know that I'm saved? The Bible says it's through faith. The church says it's something that's telling me it's through faith and a bunch of other stuff as well. So which is it? Is it is it faith or is it something else? Who is right? Is it scripture? Is it the church? What's the final authority? You see, Martin Luther was not trying to change the entire world. He was not trying to start a religious controversy. He was not trying to split the church up. He certainly wasn't trying to start a reformation that would affect the entire world. He was just trying to understand the truth of salvation. Because he desperately wanted to know God. He desperately wanted the peace that he was not able to achieve by all his works and all his efforts as a monk. And so in this environment, it's in this environment, and in this setting that Luther, by the grace of God, came face to face with one of the greatest truths rediscovered during the Reformation. And the truth led to one of the greatest statements to come out of the entire Reformation and the statement is sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. You see, the thing that Martin Luther come to understand is this, that there must be one standard for truth. One standard by which all other things must be judged. There must be one source that settles every one of the disputes. And for Martin Luther, the scriptures were it. The Bible were the undisputed source of truth. But why the Bible? Why not unwritten traditions? Why not the magisterium? Why not why, why this ancient collection of writings? Right? 
Why is that the legitimate or the only legitimate authority over matters of faith? Well, the answer to that question is found in 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul wrote, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all Scripture... All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, in this text right here, Paul makes a declaration about Scripture that we must absolutely own and not ignore. He says that all Scripture, not just some Scripture, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. God. And what you have to understand is when he says all scripture, he's not talking about some random writings from the first century. He's talking about the Bible. That's what he means when he says scripture. He says that all scripture, every bit of it, every word of it is breathed out by God. And this is a really important expression here because some translations say that the scripture was given by inspiration of God. And that's not a bad rendering if you really understand what the word inspiration means. But the problem is, is that people tend to misinterpret the text based on an idea of inspiration that they have that's not biblical. Some people will say that the Bible was inspired by God, meaning that men have written the Bible and they were inspired because of God's goodness and God's beauty and, and, and God's grace. And that led them to write what they wrote. As if they were writing like a person who would write a poem who was inspired by something beautiful or maybe someone that they loved. That that, that inspiration would lead them to write something. That there's this, it's, it's, there's this external inspiration that influenced the author to write what he wrote. But that's not the idea being communicated here at all. This expression that we find here in the text comes from the Greek word theonoustos. Theonoustos. And that word theonoustos literally means God-breathed. In fact, the word is made up of two different words put together. Theo, or God, and nuos, which is breathed. And so what Paul is saying, quite literally, is that all Scripture is the very breath of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, when you decide that you want to communicate to somebody with your voice, what's the first thing you do? You inhale and you breathe. And then you begin to speak and exhale. And you do so by letting air out in a controlled fashion over your vocal cords so you produce audible words. You are literally breathing. That's how you talk. This expression then, theonoustos, or God breathe, literally means God speaking. Or in other words, all scripture is God Literally talking. That's what scripture is. 
It's the very words of God, not words of men that God influenced. They're the very words of God written down by men as God spoke them. All Scripture, not just some of it, all Scripture, every word of it is the breath of God, the very word of God Himself. In fact, when I read Scripture in here, right, the reason why I say this is the word of the Lord, because when I'm reading that, God is speaking to you. You understand that? When, when, when you hear the word of God, that is God, when you hear those words, God is speaking to you. And so when I read, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, God is speaking, saying that all Scripture is His word. All scripture, every single word of it, every word, which means a number of things. First of all, it means that all the scripture is true because God is true. God can't lie. And so the word of God, because it is his word, is true by default. Every single word of it. Second, it means it's inerrant. Because God himself is perfect. And if God is perfect, then his word that he uses to communicate to us, to reveal himself to us, must also be perfect. It is inerrant. It's without error. Third, it's authoritative. Because it is his word to us, because he is the creator and we are the creature, then his word that he uses to communicate to us has authority in our life. And that means what he says Goes. What he says is true is true. Fourth, it is sufficient. It's enough. God's word is sufficient enough to accomplish what God has set out to accomplish. In fact, what Paul says here, and he makes very clear in the text, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God. By itself, the Holy Bible by itself is sufficient to communicate what God wants to communicate to us. It is sufficient to help us to see the truth of what we need to know to be saved. It is sufficient to change us and to shape us in the image of Christ. It is sufficient to bring about salvation in our lives. The word of God is completely sufficient. And finally, the word of God is powerful. Paul in the letter of the Hebrews uh, tells us in chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, he says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, to the joints of marrow and, and of marrow, and the discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. The word of God is powerful, powerful enough to cut us to the core, powerful enough to to quicken us, powerful enough to convict us and to expose who we really are before God. And the word is alive. The Bible contains life. The word of God itself is life and gives life and brings life. And he says it's active. It's active. It's at work in our hearts and in our lives and in the world around us. You see it where the word is preached. The Bible, the scriptures are very, are the very word of God. And they are true and errant and they are authoritative and sufficient to accomplish the will of God and they are alive and powerful. And because of that, 
Because of that, they are the foundation of truth by which we judge everything else. That's why Martin Luther appealed to sola scriptura. That's why he said scripture alone. All men, all traditions, all councils, all decisions, and all people and authority must be subject to and judged by the word of God, not the other way around. But the problem was, is the Catholic Church tried to make scripture subject to tradition. But tradition is not theonoustos. It is not God-breathed. Tradition is man-made, and it's a response to the Word of God. Now, not all traditions are bad. But all traditions must absolutely be subject to the Word of God and not the other way around. The Catholic Church also tried to make Scripture subject to ruling councils. But because the ruling councils are the ruling of men, right? they're not theonoustos, they're not God-breathed, they're not the words of God. Now, many people, you know, many church councils have done many good things in, in history and they've clarified a lot of theological issues, but ultimately those councils are supposed to be a response to the Word of God and have no authority over the Word of God. And the Catholic Church also tried, and it continues to this day, to make Scripture the subject of papal authority. In fact, the Catholic Catechism that you can find on the Vatican's website in paragraph 100, it reads, the task of interpreting the Word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. Or in other words, the Word of God is subject to their authority, but papal authority and papal interpretations and the Catholic catechism they are not theonoustos. They are not God-breathed. They are the words of men, which means they have no authority over Scripture. It's the other way around. Our final authority has been and must always be the Word of God. And Martin Luther stood on that. And the Protestant Reformation stood behind that. And it changed the entire world because the world you know, found that salvation is not through the church, but instead is through Three other solas. Sola gratia, which is grace alone. Sola fide, which is faith alone. And solas Christus, through Christ alone. You see, the Catholic Church did affirm the value of Scripture and did say that you had to be saved by grace through faith in Christ, but the church refused to acknowledge the all-important Reformation word, sola, alone. The church always wanted to make it and. Not faith alone. It was faith and. Because the church believed that your faith had to be accompanied by something else. It had to be accompanied by works. And the grace of God had to be accompanied by something else. It had to be accompanied by the sacraments that had to be given every single day over time. And that Christ had to be accompanied by something else as well. You had to be in order to be saved, you had to have also the church. Martin Luther and the Reformers stood up against this heresy and against the lies that progressively grew for, in the church over a period of about a thousand years. And they declared with a unified voice that our final authority over all matters of faith and practice is sola scriptura, scripture alone, the word of God, theonoustos. The scripture reveals 
to us that we are saved by grace alone, not by our merits. Through faith alone, not by our works. And in Christ alone and in no other way. That's the sum total of the gospel. Scripture reveals that we're helpless, broken sinners, capable, incapable of making ourselves right with God. Without the ability to make ourselves right with God. But God sent His Son to die for us and that we, if we will believe in Him, we will be saved and have eternal life. Because the righteous, the justified will live not by works, not by church attendance, not by your baptism, not by penance, not by confession. The righteous will live by faith. And that was the earth-shattering truth that Martin Luther embraced. That was the truth that caused the church to declare Martin Luther a heretic. That was the, the, the truth that launched the Reformation that would absolutely unequivocally change the world forever. And it was the truth that we hold on to to this day. Our final authority is sola scriptura. We are saved by grace, sola gratia, through sola fide, faith alone, in solus Christus, in Christ alone. For sola de gloria, for the glory of God alone. And it all began on a normal day, October 31st. There was no such thing as Halloween yet by then. It all began that day, October 31st, 500 years ago, when an Augustinian monk wanted to have a conversation about the Bible and inadvertently changed the entire world. Now, that's 500 years ago. So what does that have to do with us now? I mean, I mean, why is it important for us to be talking about this in 2017? Well, a number of reasons. First of all, it's because of Martin Luther and the Reformers and the doctrine of Sola Scriptura that we are gathered here today and not down the street at St. Joseph's Catholic Church. We're here because we don't believe that church tradition is equal to Scripture. We're here today because we don't believe that the magisterium is equal to the word of God and authority. And we certainly don't believe that the magisterium is the only group of people who can interpret scripture. In fact, we hold to the doctrine of private interpretation, meaning that we have the Holy Spirit that convicts our hearts and leads us to all, all truth. And we have the ability to read the word of God and at least pull out the elements of salvation. It's because of the Reformation that we are not Catholics hopelessly caught up in a cycle of works, hoping that maybe I'll be saved. It's because of this doctrine that we have the ability to know and be firm and understand that we are, we are saved, that we have the assurance of our salvation. Now, the second reason is important for us to talk about sola scriptura is most people don't believe in Sola Scriptura, including many people who claim to be Christians. Because today, many people believe that there are multiple sources of ultimate truth, such as traditions, or our ability to reason as rational beings, or our experiences, or our emotions, or even culture itself. There are lots of people who believe that the Bible is a source of truth and not the ultimate source of truth. That's why you hear so many people talk about the Bible as simply a collection of ancient manuscripts. Not so much the written word of God, but a collection of ancient writings gathered into a book. 
There are people who, who think that you know, a lot of what the Scripture teaches was relevant in the time that it was written, but it's not relevant for today, for our culture, or at least certain issues. There are a lot of people who think that the Bible is certainly spiritually significant, and it's useful, but they don't think that the Bible is God's actual authoritative, inerrant, infallible word to the world. They say it's filled with truths, and it may even be inspired by God, but they refuse to allow it to be the standard by which they, they judge all other truths. There are some who think that certain parts of the Bible are true, but not others. In fact, there is a group of people who call themselves the red-letter Christians because the only parts of the Bible they really take seriously and believe is all the red letters that are supposedly the words of Jesus Christ. That's all they care about. They don't care about anything else. They don't care about the Old Testament. They don't care about all the rest of the black letters. They don't care about the epistles from Paul and James and Peter and John. The only words that they think are relevant and life-giving are the words of Jesus in red. And then there's, there's other people like Rob Bell, who is a pastor of a mega church in Minnesota, who thinks that the Bible, in his own words, is a book about what it means to be human. He describes it as a library of evolutionary thought written to deepen our understanding of what it means to live an enlightened life. Never mind that the Bible is supposed to be God revealing himself to the world. When it comes to the Old Testament, Bell doesn't think that the stories are literally true, but only allegories that are used to explain certain truths. And when it comes to the New Testament, he doesn't even think that Jesus actually had to die, that he was actually murdered against his will, and that his blood wasn't even necessary for salvation. Pastor. He's not alone. More and more people are professing Christians are looking at the Bible as something other than God's authoritative revelation of himself to the world. And so because of that, our Christian faith in this culture, in this time, is in every bit as much danger as it ever was 500 years ago when Martin Luther nailed the document to the door. My friends, the Reformation started 500 years ago. It hasn't been completed yet. For many in our culture, experience and emotions and feelings rank higher than higher in authority than the Word of God. There's, there are many people who say, you know, because of how they feel, I just can't believe in a loving God that, that, that would send people to hell in spite of what the Bible actually clearly teaches about that. There are many people who will refuse to acknowledge our sinfulness and our sinful nature that we've had since birth in spite of what the Bible actually teaches about that. There are other people, you know, like a famous priest who said, I would rather go to hell. This is his words. I would rather go to hell than believe in a God that doesn't affirm homosexuality. It doesn't matter if it's the Bible, what it says, actually, you know, if it doesn't line up with his feelings or not, his feelings trump Scripture. There's still other people who say that Jesus was just a man. He just lived as a good example you know, he wasn't divine. He wasn't supernatural. We should just try to be like him without all the cultural baggage from the first century because they can't bring themselves to believe in the supernatural because they just haven't experienced a miracle. So they possibly can't be miracles. For so many people, their emotions and personal experience dictate their understanding of what the Bible says rather than the Bible having authority over their emotions. I mean, the push to deny what the Bible it teaches about marriage and sexual ethics and gender is fueled not by a proper understanding of what the text actually is saying, 
by the people's emotions and how that colors how they try to read and interpret the text. In fact, the, probably the most, most of the arguments I've heard regarding this issue generally stem from a person's experience with someone they care about and someone that they love deeply who is either homosexual or transgender or struggling with one of those. And they talk about how loving these people are, which is probably absolutely true. And they talk about how compassionate these people are, which is probably absolutely true. And they talk about what a marvelous human being they are, which is probably absolutely true. And they talk about how good they are, which really depends on how good is defined and who's defining it. Okay? But they talk about how they also deserve to be happy, and it's just emotion on top of emotion on top of emotion. And I understand that emotional pull. But they take these emotions and they use them as, as colored lenses by which they read the Scripture, right? ignoring contexts and the nuance of Scripture. And they say, see this word right here? This doesn't mean loving, monogamous, gay relationships that we talk about today. Because, I mean, that didn't even exist back then. I mean, Jesus didn't even know anything about that, is what they say. But that's nothing more than, than an emotional application to the text. They're denying the authority of Scripture over their emotions. And it's the same with traditions. People often interpret Scripture in light of tradition rather than examining a tradition in light of what the text says. Like the Roman Catholic doctrines of purgatory and Mary worship. I defy you to, to defend that out of the Bible. You can't do it. These are traditions that exist in spite of what the Bible teaches. Or the prosperity gospel. America's popular tradition, which preaches to you that if you will just trust in Jesus and have faith in him, he will make sure you live a life of health, wealth, and happiness for the rest of your life. In spite of the fact that the Bible teaches over and over and over again that the Christian life is about suffering. That Jesus himself promises in this world you will have trouble. The people will hold on to these teachings. Resonate with them in spite of what the Bible actually says. And then you have groups that claim to have additional divine revelations, like our Mormon friends, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or Seventh-day Adventists, or Oneness Pentecostals, all of them claiming on some level that they have received or they continue to receive additional theonoustos, divine revelation apart from scriptures that we have in the Bible. And some of these extra books, some of these are just extra books. Some of these are, are, are actually supposed prophets uh, that have revelations, you know, or, or, or modern-day apostles. Some say it's a revelation from certain ecclesiastical councils who, who God has enlightened to, to make these decisions. Regardless of what it is, it is some supposed revelation from God that's supposed to supersede what the Bible says. But the Bible clearly says that it is the word of God. You don't add to it. So the other things can't be the word of God, especially when they contradict what the word of God says. Now, there are lots of people who will come back and they say, well, you know, scriptures, you know, it's 2,000 years old and they've been altered and changed. And, you know, then there was like that, that guy, Constantine, who like burned all the other copies and corrupted everything. And, 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 and all this is just an effort to undermine the reliability of the Bible. The problem is, as we live in 2017, we live in the information age, 
right? And all of the scholars agree, whether they are Christian scholars or, or, um, or critical scholars, all of them agree that the evidence points to the fact that it's overwhelming that the Bible we have today is exactly what was written down 2,000 years ago. The idea that the Bible is corrupted is just a bogus idea. It might have held its weight, you know, 200 years ago when people couldn't confirm things. But all of the data, all of the information, all of the manuscripts point to this conclusion. And nobody, nobody credible will make the argument the other way. You just can't, you can't support that claim at all. The Bible that we have today is what was written down by the apostles 2,000 years ago. And if you're not sure about that, then please drop me a line. I'll send you an email with some links where, to some messages we did on this and some resources where you can do your own homework and you don't have to take my word for this. The point is, though, is the Bible itself is accurate for what we have. And every document, every supposed revelation, every emotion, every thought, every agreement, I mean, argument, every tradition, every mode of reasoning, all of these things must be examined. All of these things must be critiqued in light of what the Scriptures say and not the other way around. Sola Scriptura is the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. Not your feelings. Not the tradition that your grandma passed down to you. Not what your culture says. Not what the consensus of pastors in America say. Not what philosophy says, not what your visions and your dreams have to say. The Bible ultimately is the infallible, inerrant, divine word of God. It is theonoustos. Okay? It is the final authority for Martin Luther. It was that way for him 500 years ago. It's our final authority right now. I don't care what Rob Bell says. I don't care what Andy Stanley would say about it. I don't care what Joel Osteen says or what Brian McLaren says or what, or what our Mormon friends say or what the Holiness Pentecostals say or what the Catholic Magisterium says. Paul makes it absolutely clear all Scripture is theonoustos, God-breathed. It is the very Word of God. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Isn't Paul talking about the Old Testament here? I mean, the Bible really wasn't composed and finalized until after Paul. So quoting Paul isn't the same as quoting Scripture, is it? Well, let me share something with you from the Apostle Peter, who said, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. For some things in them are hard to understand, which the ignorance and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. You see, the word that he uses here in the Greek for scripture is the same word that Paul uses when he says all scriptures are God-breathed. In fact, the word that he uses here in the Greek is almost always used in reference to holy scriptures. In fact, I can't think of any time that it's not. It's always used of holy scriptures. And what Peter is getting at here, what he is saying, and, 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 and understand, we're talking about Peter. We're talking about Peter who was with Jesus through his three and a half years of ministry. Peter who was there when you know, Christ was arrested, right? Peter who was there when he was on the shores, when, when Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? And he says, yes, you know I love you. Feed my sheep, all right? That Peter, on the, this rock I shall you know, I'll build my church. That Peter, okay? Peter, what he's getting at here, all right, 
is that Paul's letters are Scripture, are divine revelation. They are theonostos. Peter makes it very clear that the letters of Paul are, in fact, the Word of God. And as such, they are authoritative for our lives. And that's precisely why the early church collected them and put them in to the Scriptures, is because they knew right from the very beginning that they were Scriptures. So 500 years ago, Martin Luther rediscovered the truth about the Word of God, sola scriptura, and it became the foundation of the Reformation. Sola scriptura, an idea that changed the entire world. That the Word of God is the final authority about God, and about who we are in light of that. And that we are saved by grace alone through Faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Sola Scriptura, an idea that's just as important and relevant today as it was 500 years ago. An idea that we need to learn, that we need to embrace, that we need to learn to defend, and an idea that we need to live by. Because it is the Scripture that is the very breath of God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am so very grateful to you that you have left for us an objective standard of truth, one that I can hold in my hands, one that I can look at, one that I can read on my own, that my understanding of who you are isn't subject to the whims of men, that my understanding of you isn't the subject to the whims of traditions. My understanding of you comes from this document that is alive and active. It's a, it's a lamp to my feet. It is true. Your law, every word of it is true. I thank you that, Lord, I have this, that you've given it to me. I live in a country that I can have as many copies as I want. And then I can read it for myself and I can, I can learn more about you, Lord. I pray, Father, that, that I, would, I would walk in this truth. We pray that our church will walk in this truth and we would encourage the rest of the world to walk in this truth. And that we don't get caught up in all the other garbage that comes along with religious trappings. That we don't get caught up in this idea that we have to do something to make you love us. You're saved by faith. The righteous are justified by faith. What an amazing story that is. Letting come to you broken and receive your grace and mercy. But men will take this and distort it and say, well, now you've got to go ahead and do this and do that. And you've got to read this and wear that and go to this place. I'm just grateful to you, Lord, that, that this is not what it's about. That we can come here and worship you openly, knowing that it's you, your sovereign grace, that has brought us here and delivered us. I pray, Father God, that all of our hearts would be open to this. All of us would walk in this truth. And I pray your blessing on everyone here and all that are not here. I pray you'd raise up a people in your church who would go out into the world and share this truth with the rest of them. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.